לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כה רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש, מה אישים? קיץ באוויר. Welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamet from the Highland Park Conservative Public Congregation on Jamet Highland Park, New Jersey. Joining me, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, Anshe Chesed, New York City. Rabbi Barry Chastler, Solomon Shechted Day School, Long Island. It's great to see you all. Great we are recording here. this. It's Thursday, Thursday, January 7th. So it's important that we mention that because I think we're all... still quite rattled by the events of the last 24 hours. And we have to begin to think about this. And one of the things that we do here, I think just in terms of studying the Torah and in our conversations is we, we are trying to reflect on the world through Torah. I think that that's, that's certainly the, the aim of Torah studies to reshape the way we think about the world. And, and uh, given the, the, the trauma of the last day's events, Uh, the storming of the capital. Uh, I can't think of another way to think about this than, than the violation of sacred, the, the idea of the sacred. I, we were saying, you know, maybe it would have been better that we, if, if we are in a Parsha and Vayikra to talk about this, but just to spend, spend a moment to, to think about, A, the idea of the sacred in the secular society, and B, you know, how Torah shapes our understanding of this. Barry, you want to try it? To go with this so in in this regard there's an obvious connection i think with the scene of the the burning bush moses turns aside to see why the bush is burning but not being consumed and god tells him that he's on holy ground and he must take off his shoes and there's a reverence that goes with sacredness that how we approach it and we live in more or less a secular society, even though people think of America as fundamentally more religious than some of the European countries with established religions. But we have holy secular spaces, as it were, and the Capitol is certainly one of them. Um, the mall in Washington, and this from one end to the other, it encompasses a kind of sacred space. It's where we learn, in a sense, how to be American. It has our great institutions, political, educational, cultural institutions, and it needs to be treated with reverence. And we don't necessarily need to hear a voice of God to tell us that, but we do need to think about how we act in it. In other words, there are literal boundaries around that, that plan, and literal physical boundaries, of course, now more so, and that, and that, When you are in that area, you're part of a, a story, a sacred narrative, and, um, and you're entering a reverential space. Jeremy, you want I, to... It, oh, go ahead. I just want to add one more thing. It's a living tradition. You know, this goes back to our founding as a country. You're not just there the day that you're there. You're there for the sum of our entire history as a nation. Yeah. Jeremy, yeah, this is a, this is a religion our Jew, Jewish religion is so uh, as inherited of course um, 
you know, maybe much less so in, in the non-Orthodox realms now, but the religion that we've inherited is incredibly detail-oriented, and those details enable the behaviors that we engage in to have great heft and great meaning. Uh, the, uh, the scholar of religion died a couple of years ago, Jonathan Z. Smith, said that, that said that holiness is a method of designating how to pay attention. Like this is a special moment, it's not an ordinary moment. This is a special place, it's not an ordinary place. Any old action is not okay, a special action is required. And we do have those things in the American civil religion. If you've ever seen, you know, like uh, an honor guard, we, we've all seen in, in funerals, the honor guard, the reverence with which the, the people in uniform fold up a flag and, and place it on a, on a coffin, that is a religious ritual. Um, as as detail-oriented and has the kiddushah in the secular context that we would associate with, you know, putting on tefillin or, or any of the other kinds of religious rituals that we have. And those are the things that make it special. And I do feel that um, our orientation to the sacred spaces in American civil religion partakes of some of that. I would also say that, you know, we, we, we don't want to get too partisan. Um, some of our, you know, some of our listeners may think there's any number of good things that the outgoing president has done and they may have voted for him, whatever, even though I, I certainly did not. Um, but one of the things that I think is really, that I'm taking away from these last, certainly months, but, but over the years, you know, we've spoken about in American public life, how many norms the current president broke and how many of the expectations. And, and that's one of the things that people liked about him is that he broke windows. He broke windows in human behavior and he thought nothing about, you know, violating all sorts of expectations about the, what it means to quote unquote act presidential. I got to say, I think that the, um, that the American public life is far the worse for it. And it makes me feel religious about the, the value of, I will put in, in quotes, halakha, halakha, expected behaviors, the, the ways in which we invest our behavior with importance, specialness, discipline, that's what makes it possible to hold things in reverence. And if you think that it is okay to run roughshod over every norm, to violate you know, all sorts of expectations, to thumb your eye at, at what the world expects from you, you're going to find a society that does not know how to hold things in reverence, that breaks boundaries in very destructive ways. I'm thinking about the rage with which I saw the video of, of some of the invaders, you know, insurrectionists or whatever you'd call them. This guy had a helmet and he was smash, smash, smashing the windows in the Capitol. And I thought, this is, this is intimately related to um, a, a feeling that, I can say, the president can say, I can say and do whatever I want, I'm the king. And uh, there, there are many, many currents and, and, and I guess also the, the pagan current in that as well. But I, I wanna ask another question, which is, you know, given, given the way that we frame uh, these kinds of experiences, the desecration of, of the holy precincts requires a kind of purgation and, a, and a, an atonement and also a, a reconsecration. And we don't have 
that that vocabulary, that ritual vocabulary. What, what I what I said to someone today is, what America needs is is a mikvah, right? America needs well, to go to the mikvah. They need you need a, a way to symbolically, you know, be be cleansed and to and to purify, and and that's why we have Yom Kippur because there are certain things you can't erase, like the ultimate. Right, but we have that in America too. Although it'll be curious how it plays itself out. In the sense, the inauguration is a kind of cleansing ritual because it's always been a peaceful transition. And the previous president, I think with the exception of John Adams has been there to watch the, the successor take the mantle. And I think that it functions in a way of purgation and cleansing. You know, there. Are, I, I think uh, Senator Romney spoke very well. As we all know, he experienced himself the bitterness of defeat, but he paid homage to that that secular sacred tradition, for lack of a, a better way of saying it. And I think that you know, listening to you, Elliot, I was struck by the line that comes early on in the Parsha, Vayakom al-Chadash, Yosef. Go back to Now we have a president who's almost not recognizable. He's not the old president that we knew, and I don't mean to cast aspersions and identify him with Pharaoh, but he's someone new. You know, in other words, something happened yesterday that it, I mean, the, the physical windows were broken. You know, we could deal metaphorically with broken windows. It's much harder to deal with the violence of a physical window and broken glass that you step on. So let's go right. into the Mike, part. Let's, if I can just, but before we do this real quick, I just want, want to make two, two quick points. Um, the, 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 well, this, this is on Parsha, you know, the, the Malach Hadash Asher Lo Yosef, the new king who did not recognize Joseph I think that societies have to hold the people who contributed in previous eras w with reverence. I'm, I'm just reminded how this, you know, obnoxious man made fun of John McCain, who who behaved with mind-blowing nobility in Vietnam and and in American public life, even though I, I didn't agree with John McCain about any number of things. And and this president says, you know, basically never never heard of him. Tell me about somebody who didn't get captured. Horrifying. But I, I want to, you know, Elliot, I love that comment about the mikvah. And I was thinking about something um, a little bit different from a piece of liturgy that we recited last month. I'm thinking about in the Alanisim, it says, you know, so after the war, the children come to the, the desecrated sanctuary. And they clear out the wreckage and they sanctify what was holy. And then they lit the lights. And they created the ritual for the future. And I love that stage of they arrive at the mess, they have to clean it, then they have to purify it, then they have to light it. And I think that we may find ourselves, first we've got to figure out what, what is, is a mess, what is, a, what is the, the, the destruction, and we have to lefanot, 
We have to clear out the destruction and then litaher and purify what's left. But we will be able to lahadlik because this is a great country with great institutions that, you know, despite it all, actually survived and will survive. So, so I think, I think that's, a, that's, that's, that just suggests the power of both Torah in the largest sense. And I want to, you know, on behalf of our listeners, I really appreciate because that, that, that does provide a kind of frame and a, a map for us conceptually to, to, to think through what is deeply traumatic. Um, and also, I think you were speaking to the power of ritual. We, you know, we have our own debates about, you know, can we, can we, what's, what's the prayer you say at this moment? I don't know what the prayer that you say at this moment is. The, the, all the prayers are inadequate. Even the greatest, the 23rd Psalm is inadequate. The 121st is inadequate in some ways. You know, study is important, but even study is inadequate. Study it helps us intellectually. There's a, a visceral need for an emotional connection. And, and that's why I think, I'm, you're, you know, we're all yearning for what's that symbol to do? What's the thing to do? Which is what I say, you know, the mikvah or something like kindling, bringing light into the world. That's so it's it's deeper than that and deeper than that. Okay, let's let's make a make a make a soft pasuk and, and and obviously not. But going back to the disjunctive moment in the parsha of Ayakom Melech you know, and and here reading it on so many different levels because he's he is a different person. He is a different set of policies, and and of course we have that lovely debate within the midrash about is it is it the same or is it a pharaoh with new policies, and how the shift really shakes up the body politic. Uh, but the most important moment, Hine Am B'nai Yisrael, it is a people now. It's the first reference to B'nai Yisrael as Am B'nai Yisrael. And it's a subtle moment, but it should not be lost on anybody reading this. We have reached the moment where we have a people. And now, of course, Hava Nitchak Malo, Jeremy. Well, I'll turn it to Barry. He had a great observation. Oh, I'm sorry. So this is a great line. The children of Israel have become very numerous. The Egyptians are afraid that they may one day lose their country, be overrun by the immigrants, and they're looking to craft a policy. And so the policy, as we know, at the end of chapter one, is that they're going to have all the newborn males thrown into the River Nile which in terms of Egypt is quite symbolic. The Nile is the life source and force in Egypt. It gives them the water that they need for everything. But the rabbis connected with Noah's flood in this sense, that when Pharaoh says, let us deal wisely with them, the Pharaoh and his advisors know enough Torah to know that in the beginning of Sefer Breshid, in the story of Noah, God said he would not bring another flood. And therefore, they think they're immune from punishment, which they understand has to be midah, connected midah, tit for tat, I guess we would say in popular language. So by throwing them into the Nile, God will not be able to punish them with a flood, and therefore, they'll be able to get away with their heinous crime. But as Rashi notes, following the rabbinic tradition, what Pharaoh didn't take into account is that God only promised he would not bring a flood over the entire world, he could bring a local flood. And we know the end of the story is when Pharaoh and his army is going to drown 
in the sea of reeds. So it is going to be midah connected midah. But I had a professor in Spiritist College of Judaica, Byron Sherwin, who liked to say that the devil can quote scripture, but if you were really smart, you would quote Talmud too. <laughs> so the way the rabbis imagine Pharaoh and other characters like this is they always know Torah Shevachtav. You know, they read Parshad Noach maybe when we did as well, but they don't know the Talmud. They don't know the rabbinic prism by which we refract the Torah every week. It's not enough to read the Torah. We need the Torah Shemalpeh as well. And this fits in with your observations about Halakha, Jeremy. So, okay, so so we have the beginnings of, of what really ensues as a genocidal policy against these Hebrews, uh, way out of proportion in terms of their population, most likely. Um, and emerging from them is, is are acts of resistance, Shifran Pu'ah, the 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 Hebrew midwives. We have to give credit to you know a whole number of women in in this uh, in this story. The mother of, uh, of Moses, the sister of Moses, Shifran Pua. Maybe they're the same person. Uh, the daughter of, of Pharaoh and Zipporah. Also, a lot of women in the in the story. Um, but um, I want to just let's let's for the sake of time. And, and I know we spoke a lot about current events. But we got to talk about this person, Moses, and the formation of Moses. Jeremy, take me into, if you were going to do a biography of Moses documentary, how would you stage the early years of Moses and his, that moment, the crisis moment? Well, the first thing I want to say about, about Moses, which is so interesting about the Torah's telling here in Exodus chapter 2, Vayelech ish mi beit levi, vayikachet bat levi, and the, 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 Levite man marries a Levite woman and then goes through the whole story and everybody is nameless. There are no names. Even, even the daughter of Paro, she's just described. It's, it's not her name. Her name is not Bat Paro. We, we have a, a, a tradition, Madrashic tradition that her name is, everyone always says the word Bitya. I don't understand why it's Bitya. It's Batya, but whatever. Okay. Uh, it's a story about- The Egyptian accent. <laughs> so we have, Exodus chapter two tells it, if you were doing it cinematically, it would all be dark and it would be gray and everybody would be faceless. And that's how oppression is, has left them. Um, they're just nameless. They're just faceless, but the two of them do uh, have a, have a romantic sexual relationship. And she, uh, has the beautiful baby, Batero Tokitovo, and she sees that he's beautiful. And in the in the midrash, we are told that uh, that just at his birth he filled the place with light. Um, and she hides him for three months until she can't hide him anymore because the the Nazis, also known as the Egyptians, are going to come and find him and kill the babies. And she puts him in the river, and Pharaoh's daughter finds him, and she opens up the basket. And she sees this beautiful baby and the redemptive moment. And she takes him and she gives him crashing symbols, rising light, the name in this book that we Jews call the Elish Shmot, this book of names. Moses gets this name. It's really interesting to wonder um, how it is that this Egyptian speaking woman gives him a Hebrew related name. I mean, there, there's an answer to this question that most in Egypt, in Egyptian, means something like son of, 
and there's probably some kind of like a cross-linguistic pun um, that she called him something Egyptian, but but our Torah turns it into a name which means draw out of the water. Um, it seems like it should be Mashui. His name is that he is drawn, but he is the Moshe. He is the one who will draw them out of the water. And this kind of birth story is so dramatic, so cinematic, so spectacular. It's just crashing symbols and rising light, and it's amazing. And he, oh, is, yeah, yeah. Go into go the next verse. By I'm going to read it, and I want you to comment now with that with that hat on. By he by me mahem by dal Moshe vayetze elechav. Moses grew up. He goes out among his brothers. By yar besivlotam sees their pain, their anguish. Vayar ish mitzri sees an Egyptian makay shivrim meachav. Smiting a Hebrew, Vayifen Kovacho, Vayakyain Ish, Vayachetamitri Vaitmenena Bacho. So Moses, in a sense, is is uh, what among the really interesting things about him is that he is a boundary crosser. Okay, he clearly has grown up. Pharaoh's daughter has taken him into her house and has raised him, but he is not totally lacking in knowledge of, of his Israelite background because his mother has been his his nurse is, you know, was the Meneket, literally nursed him as a baby. And they had some sort of relationship. Um, but, you know, he hasn't been oppressed. Is, is there something going on here that says that the Egyptians beat out of the Israelites the, the, the instinct for or the capacity for rebellion and freedom? They were crushed. They really were broken spirits. But Moses was not. Um, he is emotionally connected to his his Israelite people, but by virtue of growing up in strength and power and affluence, um, he had it in him to be able to be the one who was not only drawn out of the water, but draws out of the water. So when he, in that position of relative power, sees the oppression, he rises up against it. Moses is going to be consistently in our parasha represented as somebody who comes to the aid of the defenseless it's three times in a row three times in three successive verses or maybe it's five or six verses but it's three immediate things there's he, he rises up against the egyptian beating the israelite he intervenes between the two israelites who are fighting and he saves the uh, daughters of yitro when the the male shepherds are harassing them he rises to their defense moses is a guy who feels his responsibility and feels the capability so, of defending the defenseless. I want to add something here. So Vayare Dachav, he sees his brethren, his brothers. What he actually sees is that his circle of family gets wider and wider because it's not just the Israelites. It's the foreigners as well. He really, by the time he gets to Midian, he has no stake in the game. Right. They're not. He could walk away, but he chooses to get involved. And I think the moment here is that Moses on this particular day sees that his brothers are the ones who suffer. It's not necessarily biological, although we know that it is here in part, but it is almost political, as it were. Uh, because as you said, he always defends the defenseless, 
And think about what's going to happen in the next chapter. He's going to chase after the poor sheep that has wandered away from the flock and discover his mission in life. I think also there's, there's an issue of identity here. Moshe, is, you know, he, he's the, maybe he's not, he's out of adolescence. There's no, no concept of adolescence here, but he's in young adulthood. He's, he's asking, who am I? Who am I? And, and, and at the critical moment, when he sees this oppression and he sees the abuse, he says, this is who I am. And he's, he's perfectly differentiated from his Israelite brother, having grown up in, 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 in the privilege of the Pharaonic household. And he's differentiated from the Pharaonic household by, by virtue of the adoption. Well, let's move on into this the is great. This is great because the, are you going to the burning bush? I'm going to go to the burning bush, but go because ahead. This is exactly right. Because the, the story of the burning bush and so much of this whole thing is about revelation of identity, revelation of self revelation to yourself. Because he's going to say, "Me anochi ki elech el paro." Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Which, on one level, is, well, who am I to take on such a big task? But I think, on a deeper level, is exactly what you just said, Elliot. The question is, who am I? What do I stand for? What are my life commitments? And so, when when he finally goes down to see the bush, and God calls him Moshe, Moshe, or Moshe, Moshe, or however you want to hear. You know, they're making a new movie, and I, I heard that they're going to ask you to play the voice. Play that. The voice, right? I got to do it. Moshe, Moshe, don't come hither, take your shoes off. And the ground that you're standing on is holy ground. And we talked a bit about that, the kind of boundary space, the sacred space. And then Cutting through a few verses, he asked God, "Who you know, after saying me anochi, and who am, who am I going to tell is sending me?" I, we don't even know how to translate that. Do you want to give it a shot, Barry? Yeah, I like Martin Buber's translation. I will be, however I will be. That what God's revelation is that He will appear at a time of his own choosing and in a form of his own choosing. And the bush itself alerts us to what comes through in the rest of the Torah, that the great images of God are a fire, a cloud, and the wind. All things that have substance, but no fixed form. You could only paint a picture of a fire at a moment, because in the next moment it's changed its shape. And so God is amorphous, with no fixed, not without form, but with no fixed form. Okay. And he opens himself up to God. And I think part of it is a clue to what's going to happen later, because the people are going to want God to be there, and God's not going to show up. And then we'll finally get to the whole idea of Hester Panim, of God hiding his face. But even when God is acting normally, he's only there when he wants to be there. You know, that's it's interesting that you say that, because... Obviously, there's a way in which that's absolutely true. That is part of our experience that God, you know, can sometimes give us Hester Panim and sometimes not. But the plot, at any rate, of the burning bush is Eheya Imach. Yeah. I'm always going to be there with you. And so there is a, like the fire, like the, I mean, first of all, you said fire, fire, fire and wind. And, and what was the third thing? Cloud. Cloud. Um, you know, it calls to mind 
you know, Malachim, Malachim chapter 19 with Elijah at, the, at, at Chorev again, God was not in the fire and God was not in the wind, God was not in the earthquake, but the still small boys. There's a way in which God is surprising. But I do think that this passage wants to emphasize that though God may be amorphous, changing, impossible to define because beyond our ken, but also reliable, and I'll be with you. I think that that's a really important part of this passage. When, when I teach this, when I, you know, it's relational. And that we've truncated the imach, you know, and I think there's a little Rasha. Harold Kushner in his book, um, the last book that he wrote, has an, a lovely uh, chapter on this, in which he talks exactly about that. There, that this, I will be with you. And, and notice, and of course, you know, we're just meeting Moshe right now in, in Parsha Shemot. You know, that relationship is going to change over time. The, the, both God and Moshe are going to grow in this relationship. And, and in a way, it's, it stands in for how relationships evolve over time. Moshe, you know, we, we, we spent so many summers talking about the end of the story. You know, the, the, the mature Moshe, the, the Moshe who's been through all the different experiences. Here, we're seeing for the first time as a group, you know, the Moshe, you know, just coming out of the basket, literally being born and, and out of the Nile. And, and to be told, eh, yeah, I'll share, yeah, with the meaning, I will be with you as I will be with you, the way I will be with you, the way I've been with everybody before, I think, uh, you know, has, has a strong resonance for us. So, so just, you know, we, we, we don't have a lot of time left, but just we go into the, into the rest of the story, which is that Moshe is so concerned about being taken seriously. And, and I, I, I want to just explore this for a moment. You know, they're not going to, they're not going to believe these, these Jewish people. We're, we're tough people. Yeah. By the way, he's right. He's very, right. They don't believe him. They don't believe him. Oh, go on, Jeremy. He's right because he knows that they don't have the capacity. This is the beginning of next week's Parsha. They don't heed his message because they are worn out. They are crushed in spirit. And um, and and he's he's right. And he has a sense that this task is really beyond him. And I just, the, the, the negotiation uh, until God finally gets kind of mad at him and says, will you shut up and do what I'm telling you to do? But uh, he's, the, the tremendously powerful passage, Moses, I can't do this and I can't do that. And I can't do this and I can't do that. I can't do the third thing. And I can't do the fourth thing. Misam Pele Adam, who gave you a mouth, who made you, you know, deaf or, or hearing or blind or sighted. I gave you the mouth. I gave you the capacity do it right but there i think the the mouth is described as a a tool so of course moses has a mouth but he still needs words and he still needs to be able to perform what strikes me here is that there's a kind of double vision that's going to play itself out through the entire book of exodus and in some ways throughout the rest of the torah that is not just with your eye or mind and what is in your heart. So, I will be with you, but you may not recognize how I am there. That's God talking to Moses. Moses is saying, I can't do this because I don't have the tools to do this. And, you know, I have to say, I was studying this with Carol um, earlier in the week, and there's this really odd thing where here I think it says that He's described as Aral, Aral Safatayim, 
of circumcised lips or a kavata, the heaviness of mouth. The only evidence for that comes from Moses himself. No one else, if I remember correctly, describes them in that way. He describes himself that way. And let's face it, the text of the Torah is mostly Moses' words. It's great poetry. It's, you know, brilliant narration. Okay, the laws could be a little dry at times. We get that. But there's no evidence for that self-description. You know, Moses, and, and here I think what we have to define ma'amin as trust. He doesn't feel himself trustworthy. He doesn't have enough confidence in himself. And how does God give him the confidence? In a sense, he makes him into God because there's that great line, I can't remember if it's the end of this week or the beginning of next, where Aaron is going to be the prophet and Moses is going to take on the role of God. Yeah. So God won't have yeah. to say anything. And that gives us insight into the way that God appears. Yeah. And Aaron is going to be the mouthpiece. Can we just touch on, on Aaron for a second? So so Moshe is, is told to go back, okay? And, and we're going to just, I want to maybe end with this or pre-end with this. Lech likrat Moshe. God says to Aaron, Lech likrat Moshe midbar. Go see your brother in the desert. Vayelech, he goes. Vayifkeshehu, Bahar Elohim. They meet at the mountain of God. Vayishaklo. And they kiss each other, and you know, I, I still have the echoes. I miss, I miss all my patriarchs. I miss all the, I miss, I miss that conflict. There's no, they love each other. The brothers love each other. You said to someone last week, you know, Ephraim and Asher, uh, you know, this is the the only pair that that really has, you know, mutuality with them. And and Moshe and Aaron seem they don't have any problems. It's normal. It's normal. We we've put all the sibling issues behind us. Here are two brothers. They're going to share in the leadership in some way. One is going to be. The, the, the spokesperson, one is going to be the, the, the charismatic leader, and it's here. And so at the very end of the Parsha, and maybe I, I don't want to end on a down note, but it says, Moshe, they, they don't believe. <laughs> Why did you make it so bad for this people? <laughs> Jeremy. <laughs> well, you know, about so many things in life, and maybe this ties us back to the first part of the conversation about the the crisis in public life in America we have right now. Um, you know, you, you want things to be a smooth 45 degree angle up upward. Yeah. And you figure like you're starting a process and it should work. <laughs> right. Um, but the reality is that transformations um, are slow and erratic and sometimes they get better and sometimes they get worse, you know, um, we have a wonderful midrash. This is one of my favorite midrashim. That that before God created this world, God was bore alam olamotu maharivan. God was building and creating worlds. And if you want to think that everyone was better than the one before, until they got good enough, okay, that's uh, fine. But what if they weren't better? What if sometimes? The destroyed world was better than the one that succeeded it. And what if in trying to make a transformation for the better, you, you break some things and you screw some things up and sometimes they get worse. And so my reading of this piece at the end, and very interesting, of course, that the Torah, the, 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 the tradition has broken the parshiot here. Yeah. Like it's broken the, parsh, the parasha at like a really bad, scary, you know, inauspicious moment of Moses complaining, like, this sucked, man. 
this isn't the way I thought it was going to be at all. But the spiritually and morally, you know, committed person says, all right, we're, we're not done yet. We're going to have to keep, keep, keep digging through the darkness. Very last so, word. Yeah, I think this ties in very well with the Avodah at the beginning of the Parsha. Slavery is one form of hard work, but community building and community redeeming is another kind of hard work. When we say we don't want to be slaves, it doesn't mean that we don't want to work hard because we have to do that, as, as Jeremy indicated. What it means is we want to be able to control our own work. We want to be able to bring ourselves wholly to it and not be told what we have to do. But the work itself is hard. And since we began on politics, we'll end on politics as well. I was reminded, you know, someone was complaining about the president not having any easy decisions. And the answer that was given is that by the time the president has to make a decision, by definition, it's not easy because you have all those people underneath you to make the easy decisions. It's only when it's impossible that it gets to the president's desk and then the president has to make a decision. And of course it's hard, but that's the job. And Moses's job is that same job. He has to make decisions and it's not hard. I mean, it's not easy. It is, it is in fact very hard and you have to keep working at it because we don't get rest from that kind of work until we die. So uh, this is a good point to, to really wrap the bow on, on our conversation, because I think, first of all, we've given such a, a great um, insights into, you've given such great insights into, into the center, but also, you know, and in terms of shaping ideas and, and real comfort for, for the moment that we're in, I don't think we could do much better than, than spending some time with the Torah and with good friends thinking about it. I wish everyone a beautiful Shabbat. If you want to talk to us, parshatalk at gmail.com. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. We wish everyone a beautiful Shabbat. Shabbat Shabbat Shalom.